0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak, I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, DC. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Diana Schaub, a professor of political science at Loyola University, Maryland. Roger and Dr. Schaub discuss her recent book, His Greatest Speeches, How Lincoln Moved the Nation. Dr. Schaub, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, glad to be here.
0: So, uh, Dana, you are a professor of political science at the University of Maryland, although I think now you're up at Harvard teaching Harvard students about Lincoln, the subject of our discussion today. Uh, And that, of course, is your your expertise. You focus on American political thought and history, uh, excuse me, specifically referring to uh, Lincoln and and Frederick Douglass. And then the reason why we're excited to have you today is because uh, of your most recent book, His Greatest Speeches, the, uh, how, uh, Lincoln moved the nation and focusing on, on three speeches, uh, the Lyceum address, uh, the Gettysburg address, and the second inaugural, uh, there's so much there. Uh, so we're, we're going to focus, uh, on the Lyceum address today, but I just want to start out, um, by asking you about your approach. And and this comes from the preface of, of your book. Um, you see, you, you're, your book really takes the form of a commentary and then you have this great line you say which is just a fancy way of saying that i'm a slow reader and i proceed paragraph by paragraph sentence by sentence tell us about this approach and i don't imagine someone uh you know being a slow reader somehow that that it takes you longer to absorb content than other people why, why are you reading these these speeches slowly
1: Yeah, I I guess it may have to do with my training in political philosophy. Uh, I don't begin as a historian, although I've had to acquire a a fair bit of history along the way. Um, So I take the ideas seriously and the form in which those ideas are conveyed, uh, the individual words. Uh, I started by reading Plato, and when you read Plato, you're taught that, you know, (laughs) every word is important, every word is where it is for a reason. uh, And I try to make that assumption about, nearly everything else i read as well uh it doesn't always pan out uh that things are worth that close attention but when you find authors that are uh, worthy of it like lincoln uh, i think the text just uh unfolds itself and opens it uh, itself up more and more uh, the more kind of humble attention you give uh to the uh to the ideas and the words
0: well you certainly persuaded me after reading your book that lincoln deserves to be read that way uh like like a plato but that is probably the exception, not the rule, with an elected leader, an office holder, writing speeches that deserve that type of analysis and slow read, or or maybe not. I mean, it's. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Lyceum, yeah. which Lincoln delivered when he was 28 years old.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he is, of course, remarkable, but uh, I find that that kind of close attention. Um, You know, there are other uh, figures in American history who are worthy of that as well. Uh, You know, Washington's Farewell Address, just a remarkable document.
0: Um, Do you think it still happens today? Maybe we'll get this at the end. But uh, (laughs) if you had to nominate someone in the 20th century that deserves a slow read, anyone come to mind?
1: Uh, well, uh, uh, given your audience, I think I should say Ronald Reagan. Uh, ding, ding,
0: ding. All right, good. <laughs> actually,
1: there's a lot to that. Uh, but I would also uh, throw the name of Winston Churchill in there as well.
0: Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on, on Winston Churchill. We'll, we'll get to some of that at the end. But let's pick up at the start of your book. You begin with the Lyceum Address. Now, the second inaugural... That's understandable. I think you know, go through an American history course in high school, you'll get this economical Gettysburg Address. You know, I, I hope the standard practice in our schools certainly was when I was in school is that you memorize the Gettysburg Address and you actually hit on that in yeah. in the book. But Lyceum, why is that the one you started with?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, you're certainly right that it's the presidential speeches that uh, people are more familiar with and especially the two very brief ones that you mentioned. Um, but there is this uh, early Lincoln speech uh he's very young, uh, but it is a kind of comprehensive reflection on popular government, the dangers to which it is prone and then Lincoln's suggestion of a uh, of a solution so it's a you know kind of diagnosis and treatment that he offers uh, and I, I think uh you know, it, it's one that students still resonate with today. Uh, as soon as they read it, they're just like, wow, you know, <laughs> right. how, how did he diagnose uh, these dilemmas and dangers uh, so well?
0: Well, what is going, I mean, he chose to speak about this subject. I mean, give us the context for this speech. It's He's a young member of the legislature, and it wasn't like they were holding a conference in Lyceum, as I understand it, on perpetuation, were they?
1: No. Uh, so this, uh, this was at the time of the Lyceum movement. Uh, and these were organizations really at the local level devoted to sort of continuing education. Uh, so this was called the Young Men's Lyceum. It was a Springfield institution. It had only been in existence uh, for a few years. So sort of local dignitaries would be invited, and Lincoln was already one of those people. Uh, you know, he was a uh, uh, state, you know, Illinois state legislator. Um, and then sometimes, uh, you know, visiting dignitaries, very well-known people like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Emerson uh, would travel and uh, speak at all of these lyceums. Uh, so it was left up to Lincoln to choose his topic. So he chose this topic, uh, the perpetuation of our political institutions.
0: And, and, and why was that the issue for Abraham Lincoln at twenty years, eight twenty-eight years old, at this moment in American history? He's obviously, if you read the speech, he's concerned about rising mobism, which perhaps you could elaborate on. And you have uh, the tension between the abolitionists and yeah. people who support the institution of slavery, or those who just didn't support the abolitionist approach. Take us through kind of why he was seized by this concern that something was afoot here that somehow threatened institutions.
1: Yeah, so I I think there are very broad reasons why he was interested in the topic as well as very specific ones. Uh, So the broader reason uh, is that he belongs to this younger generation, and so he's trying to figure out, um, you know, all right, we have inherited this wonderful, you know, edifice of uh, political liberty. Uh, What is our task as the next generation, uh, as the inheritors? Uh, so it really is very much a generational reflection, and this is a theme that remains present in Lincoln's speeches. You know, all the way through, you can see it very clearly in the Gettysburg Address. Uh, what what is the proper task for each succeeding generation? So there's that broad question. Uh, but then there were specific issues, and what he he looks around and he sees these yeah outbreaks of mob violence. And he sees that they are motivated, really, by a quest for justice. Uh, You know, this is not just, you know, rioting and looting, although Lincoln makes the point that (laughs) once you short circuit, uh, you know, the due process of law in your quest for justice, you are going to then give license uh, to other kinds of breakdown of law as well. Um, so yeah he 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 sees these uh, these outbreaks of of mob rule and he and he gives this just amazing diagnosis of all of the results the kind of sequence that will follow from that uh eventuating in uh he thinks um the alienation of affections on the part of uh citizens especially the very best citizens uh and at that point uh such citizens will give up on the project of self-government they will look elsewhere uh they will equate popular government with anarchy and breakdown. And they will turn to the strong man or the despot. And uh, Lincoln has an analysis of human nature that teaches him that there are always such kind of tyrannically-minded figures who are lurking in the wings and ready to seize upon that opportunity to overthrow the experiment in self-government.
0: And Lincoln's playing with the audience here. You point that out a number of times in your analysis. Lincoln's obviously thinking this about this beyond the issue of the day, but certainly the issue of the day with this tension with abolitionists uh, and their tactics and mobism in terms of you know the law not being sufficient or law and order not being present, so people take matters on their hand, even if their principle that they're advancing might be appear to be moral. Right? He's he's bounding it all together, but what is what is the audience hearing when they're trying to figure out what is Lincoln getting? Because he's talking in the abstract. He speaks in the abstract so much, the perpetuation of institutions, as opposed to just getting after it. Yeah, you know, the abolitionists need to just kind of calm down. You know, they're, they're, they're self defeating in what they're seeking to do here.
1: I uh, yeah. So remember, the audience that he's speaking to in Illinois is not very sympathetic. <laughs> not sympathetic at all, really, to the abolitionists. Right. Some of them might be anti slavery. But uh, they're not immediatists. Uh, They don't take the line that the Garrisonian abolitionists take that uh, the Constitution is a pact with the devil and the only way you can get rid of slavery is to annul the Constitution. I mean, the the abolitionists were very, very radical. Uh, So there had been a local um, um, murder uh, of an abolitionist editor uh, in Illinois. And you're right that Lincoln doesn't feature that. Uh, he sort of buries the reference to that. He's trying to get his audience to transcend their own most immediate and powerful passions. Uh, and so instead, he talks about incidents elsewhere in the country. He talks about incidents of mob uh, rule in Mississippi and That's Missouri. Right. Uh, and he tr- uh, tr- tries to. Get them to, to follow this sequence, this logical sequence that he lays out of what the eventual effects of this are. He has to take them away from their immediate passions to see the longer term uh, ramifications and consequences.
0: So we'll get to this, um, this idea of passion and, and why Lincoln clearly was seized by containing it or, or managing it but i want to just stick for another minute on the language you do this so brilliantly in the book of perpetuation why was that the word as opposed to sustaining or building on i mean you really have give yeah. so much credit to lincoln for being precise in this choice of language take a minute just to explain why he chose perpetuation
1: yeah so so this is an example of that sort of close reading uh taking that that one word uh very seriously so especially since this is he's talking about the task of the next generation he's a young aspiring politician you know a new new men new measures uh why isn't the title of the talk the improvement of our political institutions Uh, And there were, of course, politicians who were arguing that way. Webster, the the great Daniel Webster, was uh, always saying that the task of his generation was improvement. Um, But then another option might be, we'll say Lincoln's a little bit more conservatively minded. Uh, Why not title it the conservation of our political institutions or the preservation of our political institutions? Um, And it seems to me that Lincoln chooses perpetuation because it makes clear what the aim is. The aim is to cause something to endure indefinitely. But that word perpetuation is still a little more open-ended as to the means. What is the means to achieve perpetuation? Is it by utter fidelity to the past? Or is it by some project in the future, some project of betterment? Um, And so the word perpetuation requires a kind of inquiry into how you actually achieve that and what sort of balance of fidelity to the past uh, and (laughs) action in the future is required. And I think that Lincoln's eventual argument at the very end of the speech, when he talks about the need for new pillars uh, and this uh, uh, need to replace uh, passion with reason, he is arguing that the actual way to achieve betterment is through a kind of fidelity, uh, by better achieving those uh, those aims of the founders themselves. So that what Lincoln does is manage to link the past and the present, uh, or the past and the and the future in the present moment, uh, and that's how he's able to uh, set forth. Or so I'll you're you're keeping way, it generation. going,
0: but you're you're allowing perpetuating allows you to 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 add or contribute to its perpetuation. It's not simply just conserving, if I understand you correctly. That, yes. that it requires some. Uh, work and 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 development of some kind uh, to ensure uh, you know it it does perpetuate. I, we'll get to the Gettysburg Address, but certainly that uh, I'll, I'll mention your views to what extent that's consistent with Lyceum or or departure in terms of the rebirth. But before yeah. we go there, a little bit more time here on this um, notion of of passion and and why that was such a concern. Certainly, mobism is is one form yeah. of 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 passion, even if people felt that there was uh, injustice in society, but to, to go ahead and take law matters in your own hand, uh, is a type is a form of passion he's concerned about. And then also, as you reference later on in the speech, the concern about the strong man, you know, yeah. someone, uh, solving the problems and, and departing from democratic institutions. Um, and the response of course, is this kind of political religion that he's advocating adherence to the constitution. Explain how the antidote to passion is reason and, and, our institutions.
1: Uh, Yeah, Uh, I mean, in a way, the the speech has uh, 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 isolates two problems and two solutions. So the immediate danger, the present danger is mob rule. And his solution to that is this political religion of reverence for the Constitution and laws. And that means for Lincoln that even bad laws of which he is very aware uh, even bad laws uh, have to be religiously obeyed until you can get them changed through the normal procedures of the law and the all of the avenues that are open to democratic citizens. Elections, you know, speech, speech right, right, press, right. uh, election, assembly, petition, uh, all of those ways to try to persuade your fellow citizens uh that the laws ought to be changed. But until that happens, uh they are there's a sacred obligation. So he delivers a very stern lesson in democratic theory, what it actually means to be a self-governing people, to live under laws of your own making.
0: It's remarkable, though, because he's also kind of wrestling with the founding of our country, which was entirely built on passions right? and the revolution. Uh,
1: but, but he doesn't say entirely. I mean, there are those principles, right? We hold these truths to be self evident. So he wants us to be aware of the principles and faithful to the principles. But what he does say is that at the time of the revolution, passion, and especially the negative passions, by passion, he always means negative passions, hatred, revenge, those kinds of things, they actually played a salutary role. You know, the ordinary folks could, you know, hate the British. (laughs) And that furthered the cause of liberty in the new nation. Uh, his argument is that once that revolutionary period has passed, those passions become destructive rather than salutary because they will now be directed inward. And that's what he sees happening.
0: And that, of course, gets to, to bad law, right? Whereas you had bad laws, un- unjust laws that were the principal reason, right, for the revolution, the of government, the very unelected. Yeah. Um, but now, bad laws, which he acknowledges could be part of, uh, of of a democratic government or a public like the United States, the, re- the response can't be revolution. I mean, I guess he has a place yeah, for that, or, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, good. Uh, it, it, in other words, Lincoln does believe there is a right of revolution. Um, and he thought that the American revolutionaries were justified uh, in staging that revolution against tyrannical government. Um, I think he believes that the extent of bad law in the new United States uh, doesn't reach to that level that it would justify the exercise of the right of revolution. But that possibility is always there. Right, uh, Go ahead. What he argues is that once you're living under laws of your own making, you now have ways to rectify those bad laws, and you must avail yourselves of those procedures. Uh, Unless and until uh, there is a decision that the government itself is so fundamentally defective that the only response is a right of revolution, but that means a resort to bloodshed, it means war.
0: Right. Now, that was Lincoln's view at the time of Lyceum, right, before the Civil War, but he is, in his, there's an undercurrent here, is my sense, that that framework perhaps didn't apply to slaves, or even free slaves, and how, uh, right In the sense that they, in Lincoln's mind, slaves weren't bound uh, to the processes of democracy because they weren't citizens of the democracy. They didn't have the franchise. Yeah, I, I is is that, that correct?
1: I think that's a good question. Yes. Uh, I'm, the way I read what he says about the obligation to obey even bad laws is that that applies to American citizens uh, who have consented to the regime and are— participants in the regime so that, um, yeah, slaves living under, um, you know, absolute despotism uh, would be justified in resorting to that right of revolution. They can kill their masters in their beds or they can try to try to flee.
0: And we'll get to to the Gettysburg Address, where I think there is kind of more uh, of an emphasis on how you change, <laughs> right? I mean, in this in this period of Civil War and what and how the structures perhaps the Lyceum um, are disrupted, but but perhaps that's not the way yeah, you view and you it. Might,
1: and you might say, but I could just add there. Yeah. I mean, I think Lincoln believes that the Civil War came about because people did not listen to what he said in the Lyceum Address. In other words, there was a almost complete breakdown of constitutionalism right. in the eighteen fifties. Uh, That leads to the to the Civil War. But I do believe that Lincoln thought that the Constitution would have been a sufficient structure uh, within which to address the terrible wrong of slavery.
0: It could have corrected. It could have been a pathway to correction short of Civil War.
1: Yes, that the founders, on his understanding, really had succeeded in placing slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. And the problem was that we had gone away from that framework uh, and that there had been various forms of backsliding and denial, really, of the founding principles, uh, so so that there had been regression.
0: uh, Interesting. One other piece that came out in this discussion of of, of bad law is— reference we kind of jumped to the to the 20th century with martin luther king <laughs> because you kind of set up martin luther king as taking a different approach than lincoln certainly lincoln in lyceum terms of how you deal with bad law we've just said that lincoln would say hey you, you work through the institutions and the democratic yeah. processes to change bad law you don't Go to mobism. You don't have a revolution. There, there, there's a framework to 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 correct bad law. Of course, Martin Luther King said, "Well, there, civil disobedience was a, was appropriate." And yeah. in a different book, a great book that uh, you wrote <laughs> along with Leon Cass and Amy Cass, "What So Proudly We Hail," or just it's a wonderful collection of of kind of patriotic and founding uh, writings uh, where you you pair. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail with um, Lincoln's Lyceum speech. Tell us about why you bring them together and and what your kind of framework is for evaluating MLK next to Lincoln in this issue.
1: Yeah, I think that these two men are still our kind of, you know, moral guiding lights. (laughs) These are people that Americans look to. And it turns out they disagree on a very fundamental issue. Now, uh, there's much they agree on, uh, but they do disagree on this matter of civil disobedience. So yes, King makes the argument in a letter from Birmingham jail that there is a kind of halfway position between obedience to law <laughs> uh, and uh, a right of revolution. There's this halfway house called civil disobedience. And I believe that Lincoln denies that there is that middle position available. Uh, his argument, as I understand it, is that all disobedience is uncivil and destructive of civil government.
0: Isn't it just a tactic, though? I mean, the civil disobedience is a, is is just another form of, I don't quite say speech, but the, the tools and the toolkit of how you can test, you know, Bad law and challenge the system, right? People in um, the civil rights movement went to jail. You know, they 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 paid the price, but in doing so, they demonstrated the immorality of, of segregation. Yes. I
1: mean, that's that's certainly the argument that King makes. He argues yes, yep. that there is a way to reverentially break the law, uh, that you can show the ultimate respect for law by breaking bad laws, so long as you do so in a certain way, and he sort of spells out the criteria uh, to engage in in civil disobedience. Um, I I believe that Lincoln does not accept that argument, uh, and he believes that the long-term consequences of the embrace of that argument Will be destructive of uh, respect for law. Yeah, it's like in his mind, it's
0: ballot or bullet. It's ballot or bullet. It's a dichotomy and not much, there's no space in between. Two
1: two options, yes, the ballot or the bullet. so it is a disagreement, really, about uh, democratic theory and the nature of citizenship. So I, I think it's an argument that all Americans need to take seriously. They need to put the two texts next to one, other, one another and really, really think them through. Um, I also think, though, that it's, it's very important to point out that most of what King does and most of what the movement does involves no civil disobedience at all. So in a way, we've, we've come to misrepresent King's legacy by so much attaching his name to that one piece uh, and the argument for civil disobedience. But things like the Montgomery bus boycott, that involves no boycotting. That. That's, that's no breaking of a law. Um, all the work that was done to get people registered, dangerous work, getting people registered to vote, uh, none of that involves law breaking. Uh, even things like Rosa Parks and the test case uh, to put something before the courts, uh, because we have the practice of judicial review, that is a kind of oh,
0: institutionalized,
1: institutionalized version of civil disobedience. Where you could in basically
0: words, look at a law and say that's actually unlawful, inconsistent with right, the Constitution. it's
1: inconsistent with the Constitution. So, because the Constitution is the ultimate authority, in the end, Rosa Parks broke no law.
0: Right. Well, in some ways, because, that can harmonize. That
1: municipal law was null and void. Right. So there are right. all kinds of ways to do this, short of actual disobedience to law.
0: Let's turn to the other side of Lyceum, which yeah. you know, now I've, I've been harping on kind of bad law and mobism and and, and Lincoln clearly uh, pushing for this adherence to reason over passion and uh, the Constitution and departing from kind of the spirits of the revolution it seems to be where he really wants to land is something that I don't think was a clear and present danger in his day. It was more of a warning for the Republic for the future, which is human nature. And eventually there'll be someone who has ambition beyond becoming president of the United States, but actually wants to be the strong man, the leader, the Napoleon. Right. Where did that come from, Dr. Yeah. I mean, so- why is he, why is he worried about that?
1: Well, remember, uh, you know, no, na- Napoleon uh, was, not, uh, was not out of, uh, you know, in that, that's kind of in, in, within his historical moment. But sure. he also mentions, you know, Caesar and Alexander, in other words, yep. timeless possibility, that kind of overweening ambition. So his analysis of the present danger, mob rule, uh, leads him then to this prediction about future dangers. Uh, and that future danger is this problem of inordinate ambition. Uh, so the the immediate solution in the moment is reverence for the Constitution and law. And then the long-term project uh, is, is related. But instead of speaking of the need for reverence, the long-term solution is the priority of reason over passion within the individual soul. So if we're going to Say that Lincoln was engaged in some kind of advance upon the founders or some kind of betterment. Uh, I think I think that's what it is. Uh, he says that you know at the time of the revolution the the experiment was sort of propped up by these pillars of the passions, but now he says those pillars have have really rotted away or they've actually become dangerous to the experiment in self-government, and so we will need new pillars. And he, he's really pointing out, I think, that self-government in the collective really depends on self-governing individuals. And that does mean the the rule of reason.
0: But, but just to make a finer point here, there wasn't anything you as a historian, I understand you're a political philosopher. Mm-hmm. And, and and from political philosophy For standpoint, what you've just articulated makes perfect sense. But if you read a headline or a story or a look <laughs> what was going on within the country at the time, the historical context, there wasn't this concern of 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 kind of the strongman rising. I mean, truly, he seems to be way ahead of his time. Or maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't. I, I don't know.
1: True, because remember, uh, at, at this point, when Lincoln delivers his speech, he's a he's a young Whig politician. The Republicans don't exist yet. True. And the Whigs were, of course, uh, denouncing Andrew Jackson as. You know, an aspiring tyrant. Uh, so there. So were, this was well, he, this
0: was a commentary about Jacksonianism and and kind of.
1: Yeah, but what's interesting is that he doesn't. Uh, he, he makes no reference right, to political opponents. He doesn't make any reference to the Democrats, uh, to to Jackson or to his successor Van Buren. Uh, now that was partly the expectation of the venue. Uh, when you gave a Lyceum address, it was not supposed to be you know too overtly partisan. Um, but I also think that it is because Lincoln does see beyond the kind of you know momentary partisan struggles that uh, he's, he's always looking very far ahead and into the future.
0: Who's in the room for Lyceum Address? Are these just the pencil neck elites in, in, in Springfield, Illinois? Is it know, about I mean, getting published in the paper? I mean, who is he trying to reach here? Is it truly going to yeah, have a called, national reach? It
1: is called the Young Men's Lyceum. Uh, so uh, the audience uh, slanted very much to young men in their in their twenties and thirties. Uh, although the the uh, the lecture was also open to to women, uh, so uh, I think there would have been women in attendance as well. Uh, and you're right that the uh, result of his efforts, you know, the lecture itself was then published in the uh, in the journal.
0: And and he was very careful. Paper. I mean, right, and he. He actually um, italicized certain words or phrases in the speech, which I kind of reinforces uh, your approach to read him yeah. closely and slowly, uh, to the point where that was captured in in the print edition of. That, speech, that's correct? right. He, he
1: he 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 was very uh, careful in the use of italics. He employed them quite liberally, but always in a way to you know feature his key words and to help you really understand the the sentence and the kind of uh, you know pairings that were often built into his sentences. Uh, and remember, he's just writing out longhand, so he actually has to have the ability to reverse the slant of his letters so that you know when it's when it's in italics.
0: Wow. Um- want to go to the end of the speech. And I think it picks up on this idea of, of the Napoleon like figure, the, the possibility of a tyrant undermining the whole democratic project. And the hero seems to be Washington. Is that because Washington had two terms as president and did the unthinkable from the modern world at that time by saying farewell? and the biggest contribution he could give the young republic was to not seek office again and and, and become a king-like figure. Is that why the the speeches punctuate with Washington. There's something interesting going on there uh, at the end. Tell tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. In so many of his early speeches, not only Lyceum, but the Temperance Address uh, and others, even speeches in the 1850s, he will often close a speech with a kind of invocation of Washington, uh, almost a sort of prayer to Washington. Um, So... I mean, it it just is true that, uh, you know, at this time, Washington is the is is the hero, still the hero, you know, the father uh, of the country, the only one of the founding fathers to be given that title. You know, (laughs) he is the founding father. Um, And of course, especially in this context of an analysis of tyranny and the temptations to tyranny, uh, I think you're right that Washington would be the key example of a person who just remarkably refuses power. Uh, whose uh, dedication to Republicanism is, is that thoroughgoing, even when he had the opportunity right, to hang on to power uh, indefinitely. Um, I think it also shows, in a way, what Lincoln is trying to achieve. He calls for both reverence and reason. And I think somehow in that figure of Washington, he's able to show the possibility of our reverence right, for the founding and, and for a particular individual, uh, and that that reverence is not at all at odds with reason. Uh, we have a reasoned basis for our uh, appreciation and reverence of Washington.
0: Is it also possibly that Washington really abhorred the passion <laughs> in politics
1: uh, too, th- i mean this is a this is a long-standing theme you know in political philosophy I mean, you go back to plato and see what right, Plato right. about the need for reason to control the passions so it's sort of part of the whole wisdom literature you know of the western canon uh but it, it's certainly true that in washington's farewell address you know he speaks so strongly against the spirit of party mm-hmm. uh and uh and that that is in a way dealing with the way the passions show up politically
0: well, I'm glad you mentioned that because you can't help but read Lyceum, and you know we're here sitting in 2022, and you know coming off of just a country so divided politically, and it's a politics of outrage, which is just another way of saying people are engaging in politics via passion, and perhaps you know reason is something that's hard to find in the uh, discussion of politics in this country today. Um, you know. Lincoln was a partisan. Did he, and he doesn't, I don't think he treats party affiliation in the Lyceum address. Perhaps he does it elsewhere, but tell us the place of party affiliation uh, and the recognition that passion of the 19th century probably was as important to getting elected as it is in the 21st century. How did it all fit together for, for Lincoln? I mean, he, you know, he won an election, he lost an election, but (laughs) Did, did he did he just not uh, he avoided it entirely? G- g- just tell us how the politics all played in yeah. here and, and elected politics and passion.
1: Yeah, so party. you know if you go back to that Washington farewell address where he speaks so strongly against the spirit of party, there there does seem to be a, a kind of hope in Washington that maybe we could do without parties or somehow. Transcend uh, parties, uh, but of course, very quickly it, it becomes clear. No, we we are going to live within a party system. Um, so uh, you could look at a speech like uh, Lincoln's uh, eulogy of Henry Clay. Uh, where he he does reflect on partisanship and he says you know clay was of a party uh, because if you hope to accomplish anything you need to belong to a party so uh lincoln clearly embraces uh party affiliation you know and then he moves from the whigs to the republicans he's one of the first you know of the republicans organizes the republican party in illinois um but you can also see that He is always concerned to keep that party spirit within certain bounds. He tries to raise the level of partisan debate to meeting on the grounds of principle. Uh, You can see him doing that very clearly in in something like the Cooper Union Address. uh uh, where he where he tries to raise the level of the debate uh he will also often speak against uh, he'll talk about a vote that he's given and he says you know i i hope that i haven't given this in out of mere party wantonness (laughs) so So basically
0: uh, he he didn't submit to the party whip there was actually some principle behind the vote
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I, I think you always see in in he's a very principled politician who also understands the need for prudence. So I see in Lincoln just a perfect balance of principle and prudence.
0: Let's take a, a, a kind of move from Lyceum, uh, perhaps well less well known to our readers, our, reader, our uh, listeners, and 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 people watching this. Ah, uh, to the Gettysburg Address, which is the next speech uh, in in your book, which is of course so well known, and I think you you put it up there perhaps as the most well known speech, yeah, kind of in the world. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if anything competes. Yeah. So there's so much to say about it, but I I thought I'd just kind of uh, enter the Gettysburg Address through the conversation we're having about Lyceum and and simply mm-hmm. ask you the question to what extent is it a departure from lyceum and, and by that i mean lyceum seems to be about or is about per- perpetuating keeping keeping it going keeping the institutions going and gettysburg because we find ourselves in the midst of the civil war it's all about rebirth renewal it is essentially president lincoln saying that the country is forever changed and the, and now we have this this rebirth it, yeah. How do you look at it?
1: Yeah, well, I, I partly agree and partly disagree. Um, I guess I would say that I think the Gettysburg uh, Address manifests still that same combination that you see in the Lyceum Address. So there is that fidelity to the founding. Uh, think of the opening sentence, you know, four and seven years ago is our, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So there is still that fidelity to the founding, to that nation. Uh, and he continues that through the, through the Gettysburg Address, right? The cause for which those at Gettysburg died uh, was to maintain that nation, that nation understood as conceived in liberty and dedicated to equality. Uh, so I think that is still dominant, that fidelity to the past. But out of that fidelity to the past uh, emerges the possibility of a fundamental betterment, a new birth of freedom. So if you look at the first sentence, what is born is the nation. There's a new nation. Right. But at the end of the speech, It's not a new, it's not a a new and different nation. It's not a refounding in that sense, you know, a, a different nation, it's a new birth of freedom It's still somehow the same nation. I I guess what I would argue is that the freedom at the end, the new birth of freedom, is now the conjoining of those two things from the founding of liberty and equality. Liberty and equality now brought into a new relationship to one another. Um, For one thing, just expanded and extended uh, to the four million slaves. Um, So in other words, if you look at the the description of the founding, Since the nation was conceived in liberty, but we do know that not all shared in that liberty. Right. Um, So we were dedicated to equality. So the new birth of freedom means now the extension of that of that liberty to to all. Let me let me. uh, Equality of liberty. Equality of liberty.
0: So in some ways, this is him. uh, This is Lincoln, kind of executing his notion of perpetuation, right? That you kind of have to yeah. add to it to, to perpetuate it. There's kind of room for kind of invention here or and, and the growth which ultimately resulted in the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth and, and amendments to the Constitution. Um but what what about okay how do you reconcile, let's put it this way, uh, okay. the Emancipation Proclamation, right, with Lincoln's notion of being True to the Constitution and, and the laws yeah. of the time, right? So, uh, I guess you can argue as a matter of law that it was inherent to the power of the president in 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 the time of war, kind of that uh, Article Two authority to emancipate. Yeah. But but that clearly was debated and 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 not the kind of easiest read. And so yeah, it, it does sure. some way depart from from Lyceum and this kind of religion of 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 being you know uh, to to our. our Constitution.
1: Yeah. Here again, I guess I disagree. I, I think that Lincoln remains a committed constitutionalist. Uh, that's what he's fighting for through the through the 1850s, uh, and and as president, I mean, all I have to do is look at how often he speaks of the oath and what the oath requires of him. So, um, yeah. Rem- I mean, you you alluded to this. The Emancipation Proclamation is justified uh, as an act uh, by the Commander in Chief in time of actual rebellion or invasion. Uh, so it's it's it, his argument is that it is militarily necessary. Uh, and think of how long he waits to issue that Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, he doesn't, uh, I think he doesn't believe that's just a pretext. Uh, he waits until that military necessity is clear. And he actually, uh, pursues other ways of achieving emancipation that would not have been by executive action. He tries to get the border states, uh, the loyal slaveholding states still loyal to the Union, to undertake uh, gradual emancipation of slaves on their own. He believed that that would have been sufficient to end the war if they had done that. Um, so, uh, So I think he's very serious that his obligation to the Union his obligation as president of the United States to maintain the Union uh, is uppermost, and that he embraces the project of ending slavery only when that becomes the the only way to save the Union.
0: Excellent, uh, super interesting. We have a few minutes <laughs> left. Um, I, I kind of want to take a step back and and engage yeah. you as scholar and you know who's, who's teaching students in universities and and you're coming at them with speeches from the 19th century, you know, from Lincoln, and and you make an argument in the the preface of your book that Lincoln's greatest speeches matter as intensely today as when first delivered. Why?
1: Yeah, I think because we are still struggling with our uh, allegiance to the founding principles. Uh, We're in a kind of position that the nation was in in the 30s, 40s and 50s, where there is more and more repudiation of natural rights, you know, with, with, you know, denial that they exist at all. Um, So I I think we're still very uncertain about uh, uh, about our founding principles. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the (laughs) the main particularly On on,
0: on college campuses. So, I mean, um, you know, you have these somewhat indirect, uh, references to kind of cancel culture and, uh, this, you know, kind of limitations on, 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 on speech, uh, that you think Lincoln is, 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 is relevant to and can perhaps inform.
1: Yeah. Pull the thread on that one example. The the cancellation was on different grounds in his era. Uh, there were plenty of people who argued, uh, "Oh, we need to be sensitive to the uh, you know to the sens- sensitivities of the southerners. Uh, we shouldn't be engaging in so much denunciation of their practices of slavery." Uh, so Lincoln had to fight against that by opening up the space for civic discourse. Uh, He he needed it to become possible to raise the question of, you know, is slavery right or wrong? Uh, If we can agree that it's wrong, uh, what is the proper policy to be pursued against it? Uh, so I, I see Lincoln as very much trying to create the space for civic discourse. Uh, he's doing that in the Lyceum Address. He's doing that in the Temperance Address, uh, and of course, that's as much needed now as now as then.
0: And that is something that a president can lead on, in your mind. I mean, is that is that the the the, the place the position yeah, that matters I, I most we- to provide that space?
1: I think we, I mean, Lincoln is doing it before he becomes president, but uh, he also does it as president. At at that point, as president, Lincoln is beginning to think about how are we going to incorporate the freedmen into the nation? Uh, How do we begin to talk about uh, the vote for African-Americans? He's leading the way in that. It's kind of cautiously, slowly, step by step. Um, Yeah, I think we've forgotten what an important role elected officials play in civic education. We, we sort of think civic education is all about, you know, what the schools are going to do, and of course that's important. But uh, elected officials themselves uh, play a key role in civic education.
0: Before we go to our lightning round and, and wrap up this amazing conversation with the, Dr. Dana Shaw, whose great book, "His Greatest Speeches: How Lincoln Moved the Nation," um, encourage everyone to to purchase it and read it. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, I need to talk a little Reagan with you because, uh, <laughs> you know, credit to, uh, our namesake here, you know, when I'm reading your treatment of, of, of Lincoln speeches, you know, there's some Reagan speeches. That I feel like I wonder what a close reading would reveal. <laughs> and, uh, I'm curious, Dr. Schaub, you know, can you take your methodology and approach? And we hit on this just at the outset, uh, to some speeches in the, in the 20th century, you do it with, uh, you know, letter from Birmingham Jail by, you know, Martin Luther King in in, in your other book. Um, are any from Reagan that jump out at you you think, you know, would would, would benefit from that close read, you know, analysis?
1: Uh, yeah yeah, sure. Uh, in other words, what I always do is sort of look at the look at the logical structure of the of the argument. Uh, so a piece that I looked at from Reagan just in uh, anticipation of our talk here was the little audio address that he gave uh, to the uh, uh, to the March for Life. Huh. Uh, he was the first president to address them. Uh, and it was actually, uh, did I write this down? Yeah, it was, it was very nice how, how it unfolded. Uh, he began by stressing our founding proposition, right, right to life. Uh, then he argued that the law ought to catch up to the science on this issue, what the science now shows us about when human life begins. Uh, and then finally, he expressed the need to care uh, for those who have had abortions. Uh, so that's a very, a very uh, lovely structure to that speech.
0: So you um, look for kind of like you know just just to make to show that there is kind of purpose and 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 intent in terms of the argument and, and how yeah it-
1: yeah it's, it's not just random. You don't just you know have a bunch of arguments that you just put yeah in some random order. There's an unfolding.
0: Do uh, you think? I mean, you know, for for Reagan, certainly, I mean. The, you can't read a you know more than a sentence of two of something he wrote or said without bumping into the word freedom, and you're you're yeah. constantly pulled into kind of the, the 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 founding principles, if not documents themselves. Uh, do you find yeah. that today's speeches of our elected leaders, our presidents? Do that enough? Are they? No, are they... there's not.
1: There's not enough attention to um, yeah, <laughs> either to the founding or to just actual arguments. <laughs> uh, and I did find out this. This is kind of interesting. Uh, for a link between uh, Reagan and Lincoln, okay. uh, he more than any other president invokes Lincoln. He does so in almost seven percent of his speeches. He either refers to or quotes Lincoln. Uh, it's it's greater than any other president. Um, he also cited the Founding Fathers uh, considerably uh, more often than other presidents. So I I think you could argue that you see in Reagan, as in Lincoln, that uh, very much a future-oriented perspective, you know, uh, Reagan's kind of famous, you know, optimism, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's always firmly grounded in the past. So you see that same ability to link uh, past and future in the present moment, and in the call to you know this generation and what we need to do.
0: Perhaps that's a formula of perpetuation, like we uh, like yeah, we started yeah. with.
1: Yeah, I, I think you do see that in Reagan.
0: <laughs> Let's jump to our lightning round, uh, fantastic conversation. Thank you, Dr. Chow, for joining us. Uh, you, you shared one of uh, Reagan's speeches uh, yeah. uh, just a moment ago. Uh, favorite book on on President Reagan? Uh, favorite uh, Reagan quote or any, uh, any any of those you'd like yeah. to share?
1: Uh, yeah on the on the book I would say the uh, the Reagan diaries uh and partly my reason for saying this is that there's nothing like it from Lincoln. Uh all we have from Lincoln are just a, a few kind of fragments of uh, reflections or drafts. Uh, uh so we have some famous ones like the meditation on the divine will which is a kind of precursor of the second inaugural. Um but yeah, I, I think that diary, and then also the fact that Reagan's diaries are in a way linked to early presidents uh, who did keep diaries, like Washington, who kept a diary. John Adams did, and most famously, John Quincy Adams. I mean, he'd been he had been a diarist from the age of seven forward. I mean, just an incredible yeah, uh, precocious. <laughs> uh, but the, the interesting thing about Reagan is that he was apparently not a journal keeper keeper or a diarist. He decided uh, when he began the presidency that. He, he made this resolution to keep a daily uh, diary and he kept to it. You know, most people don't keep every, their every day
0: in office. I think I'm told yeah. he's the only president yeah. to do that for every day in office. Yeah. I, perhaps Quincy Adams, uh, maybe the other, but I, I'm told that only Reagan yeah. did that for every day in office.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I just, I think that's remarkable. Yeah.
0: Dr. Dana Schaub, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really fantastic conversation.
1: Thank you. Really enjoyed it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.